How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And then in Revelation chapter five. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And the Lord will bless his truth to all our hearts, for Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. Since I was a child, church has been a massive part of my life. As you know, I grew up in a Presbyterian manse. The affairs of church were the conversation at our meal tables. We lived near to the buildings where the communities worshipped, in which my dad was minister. And, and so much of my life from then until now has been centered around church and what church does. And so you grew up with a kind of an attitude to church. A number of years ago, I was speaking at the New Wine Conference in Sligo and David McClay was introducing me. And uh, the subject that night was the church. And he said, I'm glad to introduce somebody, he said, who has a love-hate relationship with the church. And, and that's true. There's an awful lot about church that I love and there's an awful lot about church I hate. 
And I could have spent what time remains to me here in this signature series that I've planned to do over the, this year, one every couple of months. I could have spent most of that time talking about the things about church that I hate, but you don't want to hear that. So I'm going to talk about some of the things about church that I really love, and uh, I'm going to call the series, I Believe, and today we're going to start with I Believe in Worship. And you all know my favorite John Wimber story. I don't know how many times I've told it, but hey, we'll tell it again. And the story of John Wimber, who towards the end of his life and ministry um, was seriously ill with cancer, and there were times whenever he was so weak um, that he couldn't really function in, in ministry, and he and his wife Carol had a place in the mountains where it was cooler and fresher, and they used to go up there at times, and there in that atmosphere, John would be renewed and he would be revived, and and then when he was ready, they would return back to the city where he worked and he would take up uh, his ministry again. And on one of those occasions, when they had been away on retreat, Carol was driving him back and they, they drove back to, uh, to their home. And, and this is America, so they drive into the driveway and the garage door opens and the car drives in and the garage door closes behind them and she turns the engine off in the car and gets out and goes into the house and she starts to prepare some food for a meal. And after a while, she realizes John isn't there. And she wonders where he is. And so she looks around the house and she can't find him. And eventually she makes her way back out into the garage. And he's sitting there where she left him in the front seat, front passenger seat of the car. She opens the door of the car. Worship music is playing in the car. And John is weeping, floods of tears. And she says to him, John, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he looks up at her and he says, isn't worship beautiful? Isn't worship beautiful? It's a question. And some people who hear that question might be disposed to answer it. No, actually, it's not beautiful. To, to many people, worship seems grotesque. It seems to be something that God demands of us as if God was some kind of megalomaniac, you know, like some ancient despot demanding that people adore them on pain of death. But when you look at people worshiping God in the scriptures, you notice that it's not like that at all. You never get the impression that the people whose stories are recorded there are people who are responding to an absolute demand from God. Something completely different seems to be going on. Worship seems to be not something that God demands, but something that God elicits from us. John chapter 20, there's a story of Thomas who wasn't present when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. He refused to believe he said, until I put my finger in the marks in his hands, my hand in the injuries in his side, I will not believe. And then Jesus is there. And Jesus comes to him and he said, there you are, Thomas. There's, there's my hands. Put your finger in the marks. Here's my side. Put your hand in the wounds. Thomas doesn't do it. He just turns to Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. Worship. He can't help himself. He didn't need any further explanations or any further tests. In the presence of Jesus, something is sucked out of him, drawn out of the most inner part of his being, and he, he worships, my Lord, my God, he says. John the Baptist, 
Jesus said he was the greatest of all human beings, of, the, of those born of women, he said, no one is greater than John the Baptist. And yet when John the Baptist talked about Jesus to the crowds who came to him to be baptized in the Jordan, what did he say? John chapter one, we read that John the Baptist says in reference to Jesus, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. That's worship. That's John, the greatest of men, saying that he is not worthy to perform the most menial of tasks for the one to whom he came to point. When he thinks about Jesus, something is drawn out of him. He feels his own unworthiness. However great a person he really was, he feels unworthy and he worships the one whom he has come to prepare the way for, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Something is drawn out of him, pulled out of him by the reality of Christ. And, and everyone in that reading we just read from Revelation chapter five, the, all the angels, every created being, the four living creatures and all the elders, all worship God. You don't find any moment of demand there. You just find a group of people who find themselves in the presence of God and they just have to worship. Yesterday, Christine and I were at St. Anne's Cathedral for David McClay's ordination as bishop um, of, of uh, Down on Dremore. And uh, it, it, it was quite a thing, really. The service lasted two and a half hours, okay? So that's the end of criticisms and complaints. I don't want to hear anybody else say to me, oh, the service are too long. Two and a half hours, the service lasted, Okay. And it was an Anglican service. They were up and down, parading around the place, we men with sticks leading other people. I don't know who all these people were, why they kept walking around the building, but they did backwards and forwards for two and a half hours until David was finally ordained and made ready for his new role. It was great to be there. I love David McClay. I'm so excited that he's been made a bishop. I think he is someone to bring uh, to, to the Anglican church and to us all. And it's, it was just great to be there. And of course, it was an Anglican worship, so there was a liturgy, and they gave you a book. I think there was about 30 pages in the book. That's what we got through on the two and a half hours. And so we got all these liturgical prayers and readings of one sort and another. And, and in the middle of the service, I thought about those verses in Revelation chapter five. Because at one point in the liturgy, this is what we said. And so, with all your people, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we proclaim your great and glorious name forever praising you. Nobody told us to do it. Nobody demanded that it be the case. But in the presence of God, with all your people, the angels and archangels, and all the company of heaven, we proclaim your great and glorious name. We worship you. It's not an unknown experience for us in other areas of life. You know, when, when you see a newborn child, when you see a stranger in need, when you witness a glorious sunset, something inside of you responds to those things. You know, intelligent adults become incoherent in the presence of a newborn child. What is that all about? It's just who we are and how God made us. It's the most natural thing in the world that when we see these things or we see people in these situations, something inside of us is responding to that. 
And, and so we respond in some way. We coo into the pram of the child. You know, we put our hand in the pocket for the needy stranger. We stop for a minute to gaze at the sunset and wonder and awe and thank God to be alive. It's just, it's just what we do. It's the most natural thing in all the world. We were made to respond like that. And it's exactly the same with worship. Because what is actually happening in worship is when we get a glimpse of the Lord, when we really see him, when we find ourselves to be in his presence, our heart is stirred, something is drawn out of us, and what happens next is worship. It's the most natural thing in the world. C.S. Lewis in the 1993 movie, Shadowlands, tells the story of his marriage to Joy Davidson and of her tragic illness and death. And at one point in the movie, in, in, in the story, it, it tells how Joy is responding really well to the treatment, the treatment that she's receiving and, and she appears to be getting better and, and she's found new strength and she's, she's beginning to be able to return to some of the normal things in her life. And and everybody knows about it. And Lewis is in college on the outside of a worship service. And he's chatting to some of his friends who are there. And one of his friends says to him, well, this is a really great news, Lewis. He says, the Lord is answering your prayers. And Lewis says, that's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. Something about God that draws something out of me, and that something that is drawn out of me is worship. I can't help myself, Lewis says. God elicits our worship. So why do I love it? Well, let me just suggest a couple of things. First of all, because in worship you forget about yourself. In worship you forget about yourself. I love the story of David dancing before the Lord. I probably wasn't like this, but it wasn't far off it in terms of his wife's attitude to what she witnessed when he did. Here he was with the ark coming into Jerusalem and he's really overjoyed about it and he's out there in the front of the crowd and he's dancing as the people come into Jerusalem and his wife, Michal, watches him out of one of the upper windows of the palace and she is disgusted at him. And uh, there is that kind of part of the story where it says that after the parade was over and the ark was in Jerusalem, David dusted himself off and made his way home, quote, to bless his family. Well, I can tell you when he got to the front door of the house, there wasn't much blessing going on because his wife was waiting for him. And as soon as he came through the door, she says to him, so what do you think you're doing? You look so ridiculous and undignified. A king behaving like that? What sort of a clown are you anyway? I'm ashamed to have anything to do with you the way you have behaved today. And David says to her, I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. It's a kind of an incredible thing that David says about worship. Because to be undignified in other people's eyes, well, you know, there are times when the moment is such that you really don't mind that much. But to be humiliated in your own eyes, 
to think so little of yourself that you don't care about that, not even personally. That what matters more to you is openly and unashamedly to worship God. That is an incredible thing. David had completely and totally forgotten about himself. We are a self-fascinated race, negatively and positively. We're fascinated about ourselves in good ways that leads us to investigate and, 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 and to rise to the full height of all our potential, and that's a great thing. Negatively as well, however, we are fascinated about ourselves in ways that we shouldn't be. And We live in a culture where our rights are the highest value. Nothing is more important than my rights. And we are conscious all the time of our own image, how we look to other people and what other people think about us. And the reality is that all that stuff is far too heavy a burden to bear. And this is the place where you can lay it down. Before God, it is the place where you can forget about yourself and your image and your rights and everything else. You can lay it all down in the presence of God. I was at HTB, as you know, last week, and um, I've listened to Sandy Miller telling the same stories. I've heard him tell 12, 15, 20 times before. I could listen to him tell them 120 times, and they move me as much every time I hear them. And they were interviewing him about the days, the early days of, of the development of the Alpha Course and HTB and the influence of John Wimber. And he talked about Wimber's ministry among them. And he, he told a story I've heard so many times before. It's a really powerful story of how Wimber came to teach them and help them. And, and, and one evening they had a special meeting. If you've been to HTB, you'll know that below the church, there's a, a basement level and down there's where the coffee shop is and the bookstall is. There are a number of small rooms for meetings. And there's one that's called the spring. It's not very big. And they had a meeting in the spring one evening, which couldn't seat, doesn't really seat 100 people, but Sandy feels that maybe up to about 100 people squeezed into it that night to listen to John Wimber talk about healing. So they worshiped for a while and then John talked and then at the end he said, now we're gonna break for tea and coffee and after we have tea and coffee, we're gonna come back into the room and we're gonna do some healing. Now all these people who had been fascinated by Wimber's talk and sat there and enjoyed it, listened to him and felt this is really interesting. Suddenly they were way out of their comfort zone and thinking, I don't know what I wanna do healing. I just, you wanna hear about it, but I'm not sure about this. So they went out for the coffee break. Sandy said it was the longest coffee break he ever remembers in church because nobody wanted to go back into the room again. So eventually when they did sort of herd everybody back into the room, Wimber said, now we're gonna wait on God for words. And then the first word that, that, that came to Wimber for, for someone in the room was this. He said, there is a woman in the room and she is barren. Sandy was horrified. He was horrified. First of all, he thought to himself, well, if you had to mention something like that, did you really need to use that word? We're in London here. We're in Knightsbridge. It's a very nice, very sophisticated part of society. We don't talk about things like that. And, and, and anyway, he looked around the room. There was only about 100 people there. He knew every single one of them. He was their pastor. He knew their earthly circumstances or thought he did. And Sandy looked around the room and he thought, there's nobody here that that applies to. He'd barely finished thinking that till a young woman who was right beside him at the very back of the room got up. And she said, that'll be me then. 
And she walked to the front of the room, full view of everyone. And she received prayer from Wimber. Nine months later, she had the first of five children that were to be born into her family. And I don't tell the story because of the outcome. I tell the story because of what it must have cost that woman to do what she did that night. To reveal to this group of people who knew nothing about it, one of the most intimate things of her life, something that was her business and her husband's business and the business of no one else in that room. But she had a word from the Lord. God spoke directly to her through this strange American she had never met before. And something in her heart responded to it. She couldn't help herself, even though what was going to come now was going to be embarrassing and undignified and the sort of thing that people in polite society never do. She was going to get to her feet and say that the word was for her and walk to the front of the room and receive prayer. Because this is the place where you can forget about yourself. That's what it means. This is the place where we finally remember that this is not about us. Jesus healed a blind man. John's gospel, chapter nine. He healed him, and as a result of the healing, the blind man lost everything virtually. He got his sight, lost everything else, lost his family. They didn't want to be associated with him, lost his reputation. They all said he was a con man. He never was blind in the first place. He lost his social status because he was chucked out of the synagogue, which meant he was sent to Coventry and nobody would talk to him. So he could see now, but he lost everything else in the process. And Jesus goes to look for him and finds him. And he tells him who he is. And when Jesus reveals to him who exactly he is, we read in John chapter nine, then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He lost everything. But in the presence of Jesus, he couldn't help himself. This is not about us. This is the one place where this is not about me and this is not about you. In the worship, we have the opportunity to forget about ourselves and be open before the Lord. That's why I love worship. But also, I love worship because this is the place where you experience community. When people get together, all sorts of things happen. Some of those things are not good. They're toxic crowds in this world. I don't know if you watch some of the news bulletins in the last few weeks about protests in Iran, people screaming hatred and, and shouting at the tops of their voices, thousands of people in, in one crowd, a toxic environment. I have to admit to my shame that I have been in crowds like that in Northern Ireland in the past. But this is not that kind of crowd. This is the place of worship. And we are not here so that someone can enroll you in some earthly cause or other. So why are you here? Writing to young Christians from a Jewish background in the letter to the Hebrews, we read that the author says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
One of the purposes of being here is that we might receive encouragement in our own faith, our own obedience, in our own life of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. We get encouragement here. How do we get encouragement here? We get it from one another. When I see your faces on a Sunday, I, I get to stand up here and look at you all. Hey, you're great. When I see your faces on a Sunday, okay, and because I know a little of your stories, I maybe know some things about you that many other people here don't know. I know some of the struggles, issues, difficulties that you have faced and are facing, and yet there you are sitting in a seat. You're here to worship God. It's a massive, massive encouragement. I was looking this morning at worship at one of our services, and there was a young woman there, and I know that she's in exactly the same situation as that young woman in the story that I just told about Sandy Miller, but there she was in the place of worship, waiting on God. I was looking at another youngish woman who's a widow, and uh, she's about to co-lead a bereavement course in the life of this congregation. I was encouraged by that. I'm looking at another young woman who's here to worship God this morning. She's here on her own because her husband is really seriously ill. He probably won't be with her for a great deal of time longer, yet here she is in the presence of God waiting on him. Last Sunday at uh, 11 o'clock worship, my daughter Esther was leading worship. And one of the songs that they sang was this song. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. And as I watched Esther here at the front of church, singing those words with her eyes closed and her hands in the air, and when I thought about the journey that she and her husband and her family had been on over the last two years, and yet there she was in the front of church saying to everybody, she thought through all of that God had been faithful and so, so good. I was encouraged. When I watch people like that and I see that, I think, well, if you can have faith in your circumstances, it encourages me to have faith in mine. It's those life stories that bring authority to what we do in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, what people do up here at the front of church, what I do, what other people do, it, it, it has no authority in the light of our, of our gifting, has no authority in the light of the fact that people may have appointed us and approved us to do these particular roles. The only authority that we have for what we say comes from our life story. It comes from what faith has done in us and through us even though we face the trials, difficulties, and struggles that everyone else faces too. That's what gives the authority. And that's what brings encouragement as we come to worship together. In worship, you experience community. You receive encouragement as you look at the faces of people worshiping God, whom you know have every reason not to do so. And finally, I love the place of worship because in worship you enter the holy place. Where do we meet God? Where is he? So that we can talk to him more. 
so that we can listen to him. Where, where do you meet him? Jacob was a man on the run, and when night fell, he was tired, and he, he lay down to sleep. Um, he slept in the open air. He had nowhere else to stay. Found a rock and put his head on it for a pillow. You know, obviously, he wasn't trying to sleep outside on a January evening in Northern Ireland. Um, weather conditions were slightly better where he lived, and so he slept out in the open air, and when he slept, he dreamed. Dreamed a dream. He saw a ladder between heaven and earth, and the constant ongoing stream of angels coming and going from the heavenlies to the scene of time. And he received a promise from the Lord who spoke to him as he observed this going on in his dream. And we read in Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He called that place Bethel, which means house of God. He found himself in the house of God, in the presence of God, in the most unexpected of places. And I would love to be able to tell you tonight that in personal devotion, every day I meet with God and it is what I receive from him in that secret place that fuels my ministry and enables me to do what I, would, what I do. I would love to be able to tell you that, but if I told you that, it wouldn't be the truth. The reality is that I can struggle with that daily routine. It isn't that I don't read my Bible. It isn't that I don't pray but I struggle with it and I struggle to get something from it and at times I struggle to have any sense of God around me and speaking to me in those moments, you know. When I was at HTB, Nicky Gumbel was being asked about how he finds strength and energy for what he does, you know, and, and he, he said, well, actually, I spend most of my time just trying to survive. But he said, the really big thing for me is he said that every day I, I meet with God, I, I read his word and I pray, you know, he said... I'm one of those people, I need to have my breakfast before I go out. I'm just thinking, hey, Nikki, I'm with you on that one. You know, if I, even if I'm going out to meet somebody for breakfast, I have to have breakfast before I leave the house to go to meet them. Uh, I can't leave the house without my breakfast. And Nikki said, I'm the same. I can't go out without breakfast, you know. And he said, I, it's just exactly the same with, with scripture reading and prayer. Okay, I can go out into life and I can do life all right, but just, if I, just the same as if I went out without my breakfast. At some point later in the day, I'd remember, oh, I didn't have any breakfast, I'm hungry. He said, I feel exactly the same about reading and, and praying. So, so what he does, and I was really, really encouraged by this part. He said, I read the Bible. And then he said, I pray. But my problem is, he said, if I sit down in a chair to pray, I fall asleep. I was immensely encouraged by that. Um, I think it's something to do with age, but I could sit down in a chair virtually any time of the day and fall asleep, not a problem. So what he does is this, he lives just beside Hyde Park in London. So he reads and then he goes out into Hyde Park and he follows the same route around the park every morning, okay? Exactly the same route. So at times he can close his eyes and he still knows where he is. And he talks to God as he walks. And as he walks, he prays to God. And then he said, I notice usually in the second half of the walk, ideas start to pop into my head. And he said, I, I assume that that is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I listen to those things when I get back home. I would love to tell you that that's how it is for me. But it would be dishonest to say so because it's not. My Bethel has always been the place of worship. 
when I am with you or with the other people of God whom I've led over the years, that's where I hear him speak. That's where he seems most real to me. That's where he puts a finger on the things in my life that are wrong. That's where he encourages and directs. That's where he is. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is Bethel for me. And I'm not alone, which is encouraging, because that's where Isaiah met God. He turned up like he always turned up, except one day the roof of the temple was open and the skies were open and, and he hears the eternal counsels and he puts his hand up to volunteer and he says, I'll go. In an ordinary act of worship. Paul was one of the people on the teaching team in the church at Antioch. He was a leader there. Everybody knew him. He was a gifted guy. And he just went to church one Sunday, just like everybody else went to church. Only that Sunday, the Holy Spirit spoke, and he said, I want Paul and Barnabas to go and do mission work for me. I need you to send them out today. And there, in just an ordinary service of worship, Paul comes face to face with the God he loved, and he hears God's call. He makes a response. That, that call to Paul, that life of ministry that succeeded that, took Paul eventually to Europe. You and I are sitting here today because in an ordinary act of worship 2,000 years ago, a man heard God speak and responded to what God said in worship. And perhaps the oddest one of them all is Simeon, you know, the guy we talk about every Christmas, the old man who was in the temple, who'd been given a promise that he wouldn't die until he saw the, 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 the Lord's salvation and and. And you'd think if the Lord had gone to the trouble of telling Simeon that, that he wasn't going to die until he saw the Savior, that there would have been some sort of special appointment made for him when he could meet the Savior before he died. But there wasn't. Simeon was an old man. He went to worship every day. It was the habit of his life. He was in the temple one day when a young couple came in with a baby boy. And he, he was drawn to them and he went over to them and he looked at the child Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, he said, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Wasn't a special appointment, some special place, some particular location. He was just in the place of worship. God showed up. Worship is the most important thing about us. This is our shop window event because what we are here is what we are. Why do I say that? Well, for this reason. If you think about what we do as a church, virtually all the programs we run and all the activities that we are involved in are for people. We run youth programs for young people. We run programs for women and for men. We run initiatives in the community to reach those who are in debt, to reach those who haven't got any work to reach those who can't afford school uniforms, to reach all sorts of different people. We do all this stuff for people and that's what we need to be doing and it's great. And most of the things that we do, that's what they are. And this is one of the very few things we actually do for him. In this place, at this time. This is not about other people. This is not about individuals' needs. This is not about you, and it's not about me. 
in this place, during this time, it's all about him. And that's why worship is the most important thing we do, because it's the most unique thing that our faith offers to our world. A point of contact with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. A moment in time when I don't matter and you don't matter. And when all of our lives become focused on this one thing, what happens when we enter the presence of the Lord and something that we cannot explain is drawn out of our lives. And even if just for a few moments of the week, we are all about him.